Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you so much for joining us in worship uh, this morning and so thankful for AD preaching last week. It is a joy to be able to, to preach from God's Word each and every week, but it's also such a joy for me to be able to sit under the teaching of God's Word as well. And so I'm thankful for him and his service in teaching last week. I'm also thankful for all the men that came and joined us last night for, for the men's gathering. That was a great time gathering together. And then today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday in preparation, this was like the first uh, day of the final week of Jesus' ministry prior to his crucifixion and resurrection that we'll celebrate next Sunday. And so I'd encourage you, we'll have the two services next Sunday at 9 and at 10.30. would love to have you come out to celebrate with us in person. And then also after each service, we're going to have a, a photo booth outside for families and friends to be able to take photos together. And after the second service, we'll have an egg hunt and activities for the family just out in the courtyard uh, in this direction. And so our, our desire and our goal is to, to come and to glorify Christ, to sing of his praises and what it means that Christ defeated death that this is our hope. How do we know this is true? And what does that mean for us in the reality of our everyday lives? And so I pray that you come out to celebrate with us. Now for today, we are going to be continuing in our series through the gospel of Mark. So if you will turn with me to chapter seven. Um, uh, hopefully you have one of the scripture journals that uh, is yours for free that you can get from the connection table where it's a place to take notes along with the scripture. We're continuing through our studies as we walk with Jesus together, wanting to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. And what we're going to see today is that the, the religious leaders have reappeared. And there's going to be this clash that happens that impacts them, and I pray it impacts our heart today. To what are we trusting in, the traditions of man or the teachings of God? Because it can't be both. And so what are we following after? How are we seeking to justify ourselves before a holy God? So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at the first 23 verses today. So beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But, but you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are that what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked, asked them about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. And Jesus continued and said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning to open your word, to sit under its authority. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, Lord. Would you bring correction? Would you bring reproof? Would you teach us in the ways that you desire us to walk, Lord, for your glory? Let my words fall away and let your word take root and take hold of our hearts this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. So I I want us to see the context that this is happening right in in the beginning when it says, now when the, the Pharisees gather together, the Pharisees have shown up, the scribes have shown up, and the last time we saw them in the gospel of Mark was in Mark chapter three. Right? If you remember that Jesus had healed this person on the Sabbath when you shouldn't do any work, but Jesus healed somebody and all the religious leaders are upset because Jesus seemingly worked on the Sabbath, breaking the law, and they were so furious with him that they left there planning then how to destroy him. So when, when they reappear here, let's not assume that they're just curious, that they have good intentions. They are plotting to destroy Jesus. So that those that we remember today who sang out, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, would just a few days later turn into a mob that would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. This was the intent of the religious leaders. Now with that, it may seem strange that the first thing that they do is say, your disciples didn't wash their hands. Like, really? That's what you're going to do? Like they didn't wash their hands before they eat, so what? Like they're dirty and oh no, corona, right? Like you have to wash them for 20 seconds and then be clean. The religious leaders are not concerned about the cleanliness of the disciples' hands when it comes to physical cleanness. Notice the word that it says. They're defiled. That their hands were defiled, that, that they were unclean. 
This was the reality that, that they're making the accusation that they are morally sinful. They are wrong before a holy God because they didn't do this thing externally. Their hands have sin on them and they are putting that sin then inside their bodies. This is what the accusation was, that this was sinful, unrighteous, morally unclean. And here's the thing that's important to understand. This is not like the religious leaders are enforcing something that was taught in the Bible. This was not something that was taught in the Old Testament. This is a tradition of man that they are proclaiming. And we see that here. When it's like, why do your disciples not follow our traditions? Why aren't they doing what we said is right? Now, there's a historical document known as the Mishnah. Now, this is important to understand because this is, it's not part of the Bible, but it was part of the oral teachings of the rabbis at the time. They help us to understand what was being taught. And at one point, In the second century, regarding the Mishnah and the teaching of the rabbis, it says that tradition is a fence around the law. Think about what this means. In a positive way, we could say, okay, the law is is precious. It's worthy. We should obey it. We should be following it. We should be surrendered to God's law. But what they're saying is then we put a fence around it, a fence with posts of our own rules and our regulations to ensure that people are following it appropriately, how we define and how we say. Right? On the negative side, we can say that that fence, it's supposing, it's a mentality that God's Word is somehow vulnerable and weak. It's insufficient on its own. We have to protect God's Word. Right? We can't just let God's Word stand on its own. We need to build this fence to protect it, to ensure that people follow it. And that sort of mentality that began to see God's Word as weak and vulnerable and in need of protection led them to make some absurd rules. So, for instance, God's Word said, Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you will work. But on the seventh day belongs to God. So don't work on that day. (coughs) So to protect it, that's the law. Let's build a fence around it. The rabbis said it's unlawful to look in a mirror. Like, did you look in the mirror this morning? Because they said if you look in a mirror and you see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out. And if you pull out the gray hair... You're working, and you're going to break the Sabbath. They also made this statement that you can't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Because if they fall out, you're going to have to pick them up and put them in. Within the Mishnah, there are 186 pages that just deal with cleanliness. See, the Bible said that the Levites, those who would offer sacrifices of the 12 tribes and who would offer sacrifices to God needed to wash their hands before they made the sacrifice. The religious leader said, well, if it's good for them to wash their hands before a sacrifice, then it's good to to wash their hands. Everybody should wash their hands before every meal. 
right? But, but here's the thing. It's not just washing your hands. It's not like just count it for 20 seconds and wash your hands. The reality is, is are, are you washing them right? It has to be a vessel that holds the water. And, and that water can't be used for anything else because it has to be pure. It has to be holy. And if you use it for anything else, then it's defiled. And, and you need to use a certain amount of water. So you need a ladle of a particular size because if you don't get enough water, then your hands are still dirty. And you have to hold your hands up like this so that the water runs down to your wrist. And if you allow the water to run off your fingertips, you're still defiled. Okay, and then when you wash your hands, you have to make a fist and rub this hand around there and then make a fist and rub it around. But if you don't have enough water where it runs all the way down your arm, then then you're also defiled. And on and on it went. Offense, because we have to protect the truth, because it said that the Levites were supposed to wash their hands before they made a sacrifice. And so the religious leader said, why don't they follow our traditions? Why aren't they doing what we've taught is right and holy? This was the accusation against them. And here's the the thought. We can look at that and we can say, that's crazy. Right? Like, that's insane. Who would do that? Who would want to do that? Who would want to live like that? Like, we would never do that, right? We would never want to add to God's law. But we see this over and over throughout history, don't we? Like, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Okay, drunkenness is bad, but we need to build a fence. See, the fence should be that all alcohol is bad at any time. And if it even touches your lips, it's a sin. And, and you defile yourself. And so we extend God's law and to make it a man-made command. And, and while it can be wise for someone who has an addictive personality to say, my personal conviction is to not consume, that's fine and right and wise and good. But then to say, well, it's a sin because we're going to say it's a sin so that it doesn't lead to this other sin and this other sin that might lead to them breaking the command of God rather than just saying, this is God's command. We're building this man-made fence. We do the same thing with modesty. The Bible says we treat our unpresentable parts with greater uh, modesty in 1 Corinthians 10. Be modest in appearance, not drawing attention to ourselves in 1 Timothy 2.9. But then we apply a ruler, right? How far above the ankle, above the knees? How long is our hair? Is the hair touching the ear? Is it not touching the ear? Does it have a right uh, clothes? Are you wearing a tie on Sunday? Are you going through these right things? And we begin to measure modesty with a ruler rather than by the heart that's seeking to draw attention to oneself. And so we add. We do the same thing with the Bible itself. Think about this. The Bible itself, that we're called to hide God's Word in our heart, to meditate on it day and night. And then what we've done is some churches will want to say, yes, but only if you're using the right translation. It has to be the authorized King James or some other translation. Only if you're reading that Bible, only if you have that Bible on your shelf, then you're right. But if you're not carrying that Bible, you're defiled. And we add law and tradition on top of God's command and and declare them as the doctrines of God. And and God is going to rebuke this to the heart. Think of what He says to them. Well did Isaiah prophesy. You hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Think about what this means. 
Think about the caution that this should raise for, shouldn't it? To worship God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. Like, we can come here. We can sing the songs. You can say all the right things. Like, praise Jesus. Amen. Go be the church. Have a blessed week. We can go through all the motions. And all the while, everybody around us is thinking, aren't they such a good person? They're so nice. But meanwhile, God is looking at us and He's saying, you say all of this. You're appearing all the right way. But in reality, your heart is in rebellion toward me. He's like, I'm not fooled. You're not hiding it from me. You may impress other people, but he sees through that. And it says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Think about what that's saying, that our worship is vanity. It is worthless when we uphold the traditions of man above the commandments of God. When we say, I have the right hair, I've done the right things, I have all the right appearances, aren't you impressed, God? No. He calls it all worthless. It's vanity. Not impressed. And it's more than just vanity. It's taking from God what rightly belongs to Him. It's it's taking the obedience and all and reverence of God's Word and it's placing it on these traditions made by man. And this is exactly what Jesus addresses with them. He picks one example to where the Bible says it's right and good for to honor your father and mother. Part of that meant financially supporting your parents in their old age. But What the rabbis began to teach at the time was if you promise that money to God for future use, promise that savings account of I'm going to use that for God, then when your parents have need and they come to you needing help, you can say, sorry, I'd really like to help, but I promise that money to God. I can't help you. Meanwhile, can you see what's happening? The person thinks they're somehow righteous. Look, I mean, it's, it's sad I can't help my parents, but look how generous I'm being to God. Isn't that great? And God's like, I told you to take care of your parents. Not to promise it to me. That's why you have it, is to be obedient to care for your parents. That man's tradition was causing people to walk in disobedience to the very commands they thought they, they were trying to protect. But God's Word doesn't need our protection It calls for our surrender. God's Word will not be contained. It will not be controlled for the purposes of man. God's Word will exist in Rome free to glorify Christ. This is what it's called. So look at what it says then in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, it's kind of this, this phrase, this is what I'm imagining in my mind, right? Like Jesus, for the first time in the gospel of Mark, has really laid into the religious leaders. Like he's rebuking them, this is going deep. And I kind of imagine people kind of backing away, lest they get hit with any of the shrapnel of that rebuke. And then Jesus is like calling them all back, like, okay, <laughs> come back closer, gather back together. And he said to them, hear me, hear what I'm saying. All of you, each and every one of you, understand 
what I'm saying here, that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. William Barclay calls this one of the, the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. It turns everything upside down. The religion would want to look to the outside. And, and here's what happens. What Jesus is exposing here is a lie that takes on two different forms. It's a lie that says people are good. We're naturally good. And religion will look at that and they'll say, I'm a good person. And if I do these things, like, and do these good activities, if I don't do these bad things, if I'm having the right haircut and I'm wearing the right clothes and I'm carrying the right Bible and I'm not looking in the mirror before I go to church and I haven't worn my false teeth to church and I've washed my hands properly and I've done all these things, then I'm good. Right? I'm okay. None, I haven't allowed any of this bad stuff in. I, I've properly kept it all on the outside. It's like a person who marries the spouse of their dreams. Right? They go home. And you lock them in the house. And you step outside. You have a well-manicured lawn. You, you build a fence around the house, and, and you spend all of your time mending that fence, painting it, pulling weeds, mowing the lawn, tending the lawn, painting the house, but you never go inside. And you call that love. Do you think the spouse feels love? But in the same way, this is what so many people do with God. They put him in a box of man-made traditions. They serve the exterior. They serve the fence that we've used to protect God, to protect his commands. And we spend all of our time then serving all of these things, and we call it worship. But really, it's nothing more than self-idolatry. It's being used to, to justify myself, to say, look how good I am. And we call it worship? No. This is what God is getting to the heart of, that it is not what is outside of us. But, but here's the other side of that same coin, that, that the culture also says people are naturally good. But it takes a very different form. It's the same lie that, that people believe, right? That, that, that people are good, but, but actually the, the problem is religion. See, think of all the world's problems, and if we just did away with religion, people would be better. If we just did away with, with men are the problem, women are the problem, systemic racism is the problem, politics is the problem, bigotry is the problem, with just enough education, with just enough culture, it'll all be better. Right? If we could just do away with all of these external things, the natural light within us will shine into a bright future because we're good, right? That's as if you say a corpse inside a coffin would come to life if you take them out of the coffin. 
See, if you just free the corpse from the confines of the structure around them, if you just open the lid and pull that corpse out, it'll breathe again. It'll walk again. They'll be alive. But is that true? No. In the same way our culture wants to say people are naturally good and if we can just break free to allow them to to walk in the freedom of who they really are, they'll be free. They'll be good. But what Jesus is saying is radically, radically different. He's like, the problem isn't outside. Your goodness isn't outside and the problem isn't outside. The problem is inside of you. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person is what defiles him. And this is what he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile the person. That out of the heart comes evil. Now here's the penetrating reality that should hit us. The problem isn't outside. The problem can't be solved by building a fence around God's rules and saying, look how well I've followed them. The problem isn't just by letting ourselves free to do whatever we want. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? This is the condition of our heart apart from Christ. Romans 3 says that because of that, no one is righteous, no one's good, no one is going to seek after God naturally, no one does what's right. How can a dead man do what is good and right? How can someone who is dead seek after God? It's impossible. This is the weight of what's being said. And and then he helps us even understand what that means. He's like, evil thoughts? We can say, oh, I I had this evil thought, but that's because this ad popped up on my computer. That's because this person cut me off. And if they didn't cut me off and do this, then I wouldn't be so angry. And what Jesus is saying, no, it's not those external circumstances. It's coming from within. It's from the heart. Why did you respond with so much anger when that happened? It's the sexual deviation. When we're like, oh, if, if I didn't have internet, if it didn't pop up on my phone, if this person didn't flirt with me, I wouldn't have done these things. Oh, I'm just born this way, therefore I, I've walked in rebellion. And we say all of these things. Say, if only those were different, then it would be okay. But God's like, no, that desire, that bent is coming from within. It's not from outside. And it goes on and on. Theft. We can say, well, I haven't stolen anything. But what precedes theft in our heart? Wouldn't we say it's covetedness? That I wanted what somebody else had and in greed I took it for myself? The sin inside the heart led to the action. But we just look at ourselves and say, I haven't done the action. But Jesus is saying it goes so much deeper. The brokenness is within. And we can talk about murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. You get the hint. Like It's not even that the list just ends there. You talk about any sin with our hands and the reality is it is motivated and fed by a heart that is a wellspring of evil that wants to find the most creative ways to walk in rebellion to God. 
It is not our action of sin only that makes us a sinner. Because we sin, it is a sinful heart that causes us to sin. And the reality is this should lead us to a despair. Because it's out of despair that we ultimately find hope in Christ. But if we continually think of ourselves as good, we're never going to get to this point. We're going to continue to build man-made fences or we're going to continue to blame the, the situations around us for our own sin until we come to the point that the problem is inside. God tells us that the problem, that we sin because our heart is hopelessly hard and rebelled, rebelling against God. That people often, we give our lives to serving these man-made fences of human tradition that mimic spirituality but lack all substance. We call worship what is ultimately self-idolatry as we seek to make ourselves appear right to others, to ourself, and to God, all the while hiding the reality in our own heart. In around dead hearts, we blame culture, we blame religion, we blame systems, we blame other people because we falsely believe that our dead hearts will find freedom if only all of these other things would just go away and stop holding me back. But how can a heart of stone breathe again? We're broken inside, and it's not until we come to that realization that we actually understand the hope that we have in Christ. There's only one answer, one hope, one possibility, and it's that God would give us a new heart. This is what the, the Bible calls regeneration, to be born again. Our only hope is if God takes this heart of stone that is hard and stubborn against God, and He transplants it, and He takes it out and gives us a new heart that then can beat and breathe and live with a new spirit. It's only then that we can believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Regeneration, new birth, comes before faith. This is exactly what Ezekiel 36.26 says. When it was prophesied that God said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. John 3.3 3 says, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, unless you are born again, unless God gives you this new heart, you cannot seek the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. You are new. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The only hope we have is for Christ to do His work in us, to give us a new heart. It's not going to be by building these man-made traditions, by saying, oh, look how good I am, or by blaming them. And so I, I want to conclude with two applications so what do we do with this? How do we think through this? What does this mean for, for us this morning and where our hearts need correction and training in righteousness? And it's this question to ask yourself, how am I building or blaming 
man-made structures to justify myself. Like, think about this. What are you building or blaming to seek to justify yourself? In the same way that the Pharisee said that fences are, traditions are fences to protect God's law. Are you building religious fences? Honoring God with your lips. Following the traditions of man rather than the commandments of God. Following religious traditions so you feel better about yourself, but inwardly your heart remains rebelling against God. The question is not just, have you had alcohol? Are you wearing the right clothes? Do you have the right haircut? Are you carrying the right version of the Bible? But where is your heart this morning before God? Are you singing along to the worship service so that other people see you singing? Or because you're actually worshiping God? Do you think that, that God is impressed because you've come here this morning to join in the service and now your week's going to go better because you've done your time? Or in this moment, is your heart bent toward God to know Him, to be with Him, to see Him, to allow Him to speak into your life? Because you may fool me, you may fool those around you, but God is not fooled. He's looking at our hearts. And some of us are building these religious fences, these traditions of man, these masks so that we have the appearance of something we are not because we want to protect our own hearts because we don't want to see our own brokenness and we don't, definitely don't want other people to see our brokenness. And so some of us build fence after fence to keep people away from the work that God wants to do in us by His grace and mercy. Now others are here, and you're like, I'm not trying to build the fences, I just want to tear them all down. Right? Like, if only it wasn't for these religious rules, if God didn't have any commands, if, if society didn't put any restrictions on me, if I was just allowed to do what I want, when I want it, and how I want it, to be free and to live my truth, everything would be better. And God's like, hmm... That is the same lie that sees ourselves as good rather than broken. It's in brokenness when we say these systems only expose the deadness of my own heart and we cry out then for mercy. And so how are you building or blaming man-made traditions to justify yourself. And, and then that leads to, that exposes the problem that then leads us to the answer. How am I relying on God to transform my heart? Like this is what I pray for us this morning, that, that, that this is the heart of what you take away from this is, what does this mean now? Like how do I rely on God to transform my heart so that I'm not trusting and falling into the same mistakes these religious leaders were? that so many have fallen into? How do I continue to trust that God is the one who's transforming my heart? That if you're here and you're like, I have not yet 
trusted in Jesus? What does this mean? How then should I respond? And I believe it is by praying and asking that God would give you a new heart and to give you the faith you need to trust in Jesus. That God would cause us, as it says in 1 Peter 1.3, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In Him causing us to be born again then leads us to faith, as it says in 1 John 5.1. Everyone who's, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. We need to be born again so that we can have faith in Christ. And so if you're here, I think one of the great examples we see is in Mark 9, verse 24, where Jesus called this man to believe. The same thing I'm calling to, believe on Jesus Christ. And and he's like, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think for some, that's how we need to cry out to God this morning. Like, I, I, I kind of believe, I want to believe, but I'm not for sure if I do. I think it's to cry out to God and, and to claim that and to say, Lord, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, give me a new heart so I can believe. It's to look to God from the very beginning. And for those who you're like, I'm praying for a family member, a spouse, a friend who's an unbeliever. How do I pray for them? I still think one of the best examples of how to pray for an unbeliever is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. When it's to say, Lord, lift the veil from their eyes that blinds them from seeing and savoring the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let your light shine into the darkness and hardness of their heart so that they can see you and know you. This is how I pray for those who have not yet believed. It's to look to God. But then what of those who are here and you're like, I have looked to God by His grace? What does this mean for for those who are believers today? Who are like, "I, I have trusted in Jesus. How do we need to remind our hearts of His truth? so that we continue to rest in the teachings of Christ rather than the teachings of man. I think there is both a past, a present, and a future truth we need to hold on to as believers. This is is the language I would encourage you to speak to your own heart when you want to look at the actions and say, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, I'm okay, where in reality your heart is all a mess. See, the past truth is this. My heart was dead in sin. Nothing I did or desired, thought in my mind, caused my heart to come to life. That if it were not for God, my heart would still be dead. My heart would still be a wellspring of evil. I mean, think about that. Like, this is what I I say to myself. If it were not for God, who I would be today would be a man with a heart in rebellion to God. It is only by His grace, only by His mercy, that He took my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh that I could breathe again, that I could have His Spirit within me. I didn't do anything to deserve that or to earn that. That was His work in my life. So how can I stand in judgment to everyone, anyone else? Because this is my story. 
This is who I was. But who I am today, in this moment, by God's grace, I have a new heart. I am a new creation. That old sinful man, that heart of stone, was crucified with Christ. It was nailed to the cross with Him, and I no longer live. But it's Christ who lives in me. This hope that is in me is because of God at work. That I am a child of God now. I am His possession for His glory. And I'm free. Truly, ultimately free. I'm not bound by the traditions of man and I am not bound by the schemes of Satan. I am free to follow God and to walk in obedience because His Spirit is at work within me. My heart is no longer dead. It is alive by His mercy and His grace. That is who I am. And now I live by faith to the glory of God alone. This is what we can proclaim in truth about ourselves. This is who I was. This is who I am. And I still sin. I still stumble. I'm no longer bound by sin. Think about when, when you wake up from a nap or sleeping and you have the sleep mark still in your face, those, the, those lines that are there. In, in the same way, we are freed from sin, but we have patterns in our flesh that cause us to still sin. But that sin does not define us. We are not defined by those mistakes. We are defined by God's mercy. And because we are defined by mercy, we repent when we fail as believers, and we rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ, knowing that our position has not changed, our identity has not changed. That is all true. In one day, one day, even those remnant patterns of sin will be taken away. Even the presence of sin will be removed. This is the hope we have. And so why, as a believer in Jesus Christ, would you look to the traditions of man for your righteousness when we have Christ? Let us look to Christ together for our hope, for our salvation. Let us rejoice in the freedom that we have as He continues to sanctify and renew our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. That Lord, on one hand, when I hear You re rebuking the Pharisees, I'm like, yes! <laughs> Breaking down the structures of man, but then You cut to our heart, Lord. You expose our hearts for who we really are apart from You. Lord, help us to see You. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lift the veil from our own eyes, Lord. Anyone here this morning who has heard this, Lord, lift the eyes Lift the veil from their eyes so that they can see the beauty of Jesus Christ and what You have done in Your perfect life, Your death on the cross and Your resurrection, Lord. Give belief where there is unbelief. Give a heart of flesh where there is a heart of stone. 
Lord, and for those who are here who have placed their faith and trust in You, that You have given them a new heart. You have given them a new spirit within in them, Lord. But they still see themselves as that old person rather than the new creation that You have declared them to be, Lord. I pray that they would feel deep within them the reality of who they are in You. Lord, help us all to walk in, in, in the commandments of Your Word and of Your commandments, not seeking to justify ourselves externally by the traditions of man. But let those fall away so that we can follow You and You alone. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.